Take your Bibles in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and let's get back to where we left off at the end of, near the end of August. Uh, we are going to need to take a little bit of time. I just want to do a brief review of chapter 3, just to set the table. Maybe you haven't been with us in a while. And uh, we're in the second letter and the final letter uh, to Timothy and the final letter of the Apostle Paul um, that's preserved for us under inspiration. So this is the, the final words of Paul. And in fact, tonight we're going to find out that we're in the final exhortation stage, the final command, the final call to young Timothy. Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. He was sent there by Paul to set things in order, to establish uh, the truth, to make sure that doctrine did not err into myths and controversies and endless genealogies. False teachers had crept into Ephesus, which is exactly what Paul told them would happen in Acts chapter 20. And from their eldership even, there were leaders, no doubt, who had taken on false doctrine and were leading the sheep astray. And some had even departed, walked away from the faith that they had been introduced to at the church at Ephesus, and now were following um, a course of false doctrine. In chapter 3, he reminds Timothy of the desperate situation which he is about to encounter. And he says in verse 1, he really sets the table for all of chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That's kind of the heading over the entire paragraph, or the entire chapter. Um, there are tough times coming in the last days. And maybe, maybe you need a reminder, or I need a reminder on what the last days are. But the last days are from the point of Christ's ascension into heaven until His return from heaven. So you and I are existing right now in the last days. And Timothy was also a pastor, an elder there at Ephesus during these last days. And Paul says, don't worry, what's present now in my persecution, is going to keep going. Difficult times are coming, and they're going to multiply in their severity. Paul is writing this reminder or this word to Timothy in chapter 3 from a prison cell in Rome. Nero is attacking the believers. He has used them as his scapegoat for his insanity, history tells us. And he is being used of Satan to destroy believers in an attempt to crush and break the back of the gospel. Of course... This letter is a call for endurance, and the gospel has endured because the victory is won, and God's faithful message will go on through God's faithful messengers, and that's exactly what Paul desires for Timothy in light of these last days and the difficulty that is coming. Now, he picks up in verse 2, and he tells him what those last days are going to look like, and really verses 2 all the way through the end of the chapter kind of outline for us those difficult days, and so I divided them up into four C's. We see the cause of those difficult days, those difficult times in the last days, and the cause is wicked people. Uh, wicked people will exist in these last days. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, the description is verbose. So the cause is wicked people in verses 2 through 9. Then the contrast during these final days and these difficult times are the faithful believers in verses 10 through 11. And Paul would be one of those, and he desires for Timothy as well to be one of those. The faithful believers set the contrast. You have the cause and the contrast. And then in verses 12 and 13, we find the consequence. The consequence of these difficult times in the last days is suffering for the believers. That's what Paul promises in verses 12 and 13. 
that the difficult times will not just be out there. They're not just beyond the walls or the back doors of the little theater. They're not just on the other side of the planet. It's a promise. The difficult times in the last days will result in suffering for those who are faithful to the gospel. Okay, so that's the consequence. You have the cause, wicked people, the contrast, faithful believers, and the consequence is suffering saints. And then finally, he ends in verses 14 through 17. He concludes this thought section, which now is divided into chapter 3. He ends this thought with the last C, and that is the command for Timothy. So the cause, the contrast, the consequence, and the command. And the command is, but as for you, Timothy, in verse 14, continue, endure, press on. And this has been a theme throughout this letter. Timothy, don't stop. Just keep going. Stay true to what you've been taught. Stay true to what you have received and believed. Press on in the gospel and continue. He explains that in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. And and in verse 15, he encourages him that he has been taught the sacred scriptures from the time of his childhood. He goes on in 16 to affirm that the scriptures are in fact the very the very voice of God recorded for us on paper. They are the breathed out words from God. And so the heritage that he remembers from his childhood and the very nature of the word that he encounters in scripture, both should be the backbone for his continuation in ministry. And verse 17 ends by reminding Timothy that because the word is inspired and because the word is profitable, it is also sufficient. It's sufficient for him to be equipped for everything he needs to do. The Word of God is good enough. We have the Scriptures. We have all that we need. Peter, of course, would remind us of that same truth, um, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have all the resources necessary. The victory has been won at the resurrection. We have the preserved Word that communicates and teaches us the Gospel as well as provides for us the revelation of God Himself, which is what I talked about with the men yesterday at Countryside. God is revealed on the pages of Scripture. And therefore, the man of God is fully equipped for every good work. Okay? So that's the message of chapter 3. It's almost like it's the bad news. He's saying to Timothy in verse 1, it's going to be rough, Timothy. I'm about to leave. I'm not going to live much longer And I want you to know the situation. The situation is not looking good. And yet you must continue. Now he transitions, and not drastically, he continues the thought, but he does transition in chapter 4. And this evening we're going to study verses 1 through 5. Is that what you have on your note sheets? Do you have 1 through 5? I hope so. You have 1 through 8? You have have 3, 14 through 17? I thought we'd already done that. We can go back. Uh, It's a great section. We're going to do chapter 4, and we're going to do verses 1 through 5. So you can edit your little note sheet and uh, update that. We're going to head into chapter 4. We did study chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Anybody want to affirm that for me? Want to second that motion? Yes, we did? Okay. All right. I thought so. That's a pretty familiar section. So, Okay. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 this evening will be our place for our study. And Paul has not transitioned drastically here. Uh, understand that your chapter divisions and your verse divisions, those have been added to your translation. Okay? Everybody know that? Those are not inspired. Those are not um, a part of the original manuscripts. Those are not even a part of the copied manuscripts. 
Those are added by scribes very late to help us uh, divide and see the paragraph divisions in the language, in the Greek language, as Paul used it. So when Paul wrote this letter, there were no divisions like this, and yet these are helpful for us as, as he would set apart a thought section. These now, these verses, give us an outline, and the chapter headings uh, provide a break in the thought for us. Not a huge break, but a break nonetheless. He moves from commanding Timothy to continue to now charging Timothy in his task in chapter 4. Paul's called on Timothy to endure in the ministry, and now he gives him one final word, one final call for success in ministry. This is really it, folks. This is, this is the last word from, Tim, from Paul to Timothy. We're going to see at the end of this uh, chapter, Paul's going to describe himself in verses 6 through 8. He's going he's to tell Timothy that it's okay. He has finished his course. He has fought the good fight. He's finished the race. Then he's going to give personal instructions to Timothy about what he'd like to have happen in the next, um, in the very near future, verses 9 through 18. Then he's going to ask Timothy to greet certain people in verses 19 through 22. And then in 22, he's going to say, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. And that's it. It's over. The writing ministry of the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comes to a conclusion with those words in verse 22. So here in verses 1 through 5 is the final instruction that he gives to Timothy. I would just tell you here at the outset that I have anticipated this section for some time because this, these five verses um, probably are um, in a very, very, very small number of passages that have radically altered my life. This passage altered my life in college. There was a growing sense beginning after my freshman year. No, beginning before my freshman year. I began to have um, a growing sense of frustration with the communication in preaching that I was receiving in the ministry that I was serving in. I was in a camp ministry and we had various speakers coming every single week of the summer and a thousand teenagers were coming every week for those camps. And, and as they were preaching, for the first time in my life, I had a friend say to me, um, that, that, doesn't actually, that doesn't actually match what the Scriptures say. And I was actually endorsing a comment that had been made. And for the first time in my life, I had somebody actually tell me that they didn't think that what the, the preacher communicated in that service was from Scripture. And that, I remember specifically, I remember that evening. I remember where I was. I remember that gripping my mind and thinking, I've never thought about it. I've never thought to check to see if what's being said is biblical. And so that started a journey that ended um, or culminated during my junior year of college when this text uh, took life in my own heart and the Lord solidified in me a desire to preach the word. And so this text has been one that has been reiterated to me over and over again. This is a message that comes up every day almost at the Master's Seminary. It has been the part of my mentoring with my pastors who have poured their lives into me and discipled me for the cause of ministry. This passage continually comes back to remind me of what it is to preach. And so tonight, my goal is to look at this with an eye to seeing the details that Paul uses to describe what is a very familiar section. I want us to see these things, and I've, I've divided them up, the details, into four sections. We're going to see the authority for the pastor's preaching. 
We're going to see the source. I'm going to go back through these. But we're going to see the source for the pastor's preaching. We're going to see the method for the pastor's preaching. And then the demand for the pastor's preaching. And that will wrap up verse 5 for us. And we're going to need to do that in the very few moments that are left. So let's, let's make our way to these verses. I'm going to read them. You read along in your scriptures. And consider these words. These are the words of the living God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, excuse me, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. These are the final words, the final instructions that Paul gives to young Timothy. So let's begin then our, our look at this text with the authority for the pastor's preaching. The authority is found in verse 1, and it is, it's not difficult to see. These are right on the surface for us to glean. And at times there are truths and powerful truths in Scripture that seem to take a little more effort for us to mine out. And at times the treasures of Scripture lay right on the surface, and we can just come to them and sweep them up with very little effort. And that is the case here. The authority for the pastor's preaching. Here it is. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Here is the basis for this charge that we find in verse 2. The imperative in this section, the command in this section, is verse 2, preach the word. That is the command. Everything else is built around it. But the authority comes from, first, the apostolic authority of Paul. You see at the beginning of verse 1, he says, I charge you. I charge you. I, the Apostle Paul, to you, Timothy, my protege, my disciple if you will, I charge you. You should listen. I'm the Apostle. I'm the one who has been set apart as a messenger in a special sense. I've seen the Lord with my own eyes, and I charge you. And yet Paul moves as quickly as he uses the word I, he quickly moves to the real authority behind his apostolic authority. And he goes right into what would grip the heart of Timothy and what grips my heart and I trust grips your heart this evening. He charges Timothy in the presence, that is almost with the witness, the presence of God and Christ Jesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. The divine authority is employed upon Timothy's responsibility. Timothy, you are not just a pastor, elder. You are not just a teacher within the church that lives outside of the oversight and the direction of the head of the church, which we've been talking about in the mornings. Paul uses the divine authority to get the attention of Timothy about the severity of what he's about to tell him. This is non-negotiable. Now let me deal with just a quick grammatical point that caused me at first read to re-examine what we have here. 
Notice that he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. A couple things came to mind. And I would challenge you to do this as well. But as we study the Bible, and as I study the Bible, I actually query the Bible. I, I ask it questions. And I, I write out in the notes, in the side of my notes, I ask questions. And I ask questions about that little phrase, God and of Christ Jesus. Because that phrase caught my attention. First of all, I asked out in the margin, why not the Spirit? I, why was the Spirit left out of this picture? Why is the Trinity divided just down to these two proper names of the Father and the Son? And then I asked myself, what is the use of and? And maybe that's a more technical question, but I know that there are multiple ways to understand the word and in the Greek language. And so I came back to my sources, I studied, and I looked a little bit deeper, and I think that the best understanding, and maybe your translation has this, but I charge you in the presence of God, even of Christ Jesus. I believe that he is pointing directly to Christ. In the English language, and is just a continuation. In the Greek language, it can stand as a contrastive word. It could mean also, which is a further defining word, or it can mean even, or it can be a simple and, a simple continuation. Here I believe it is further defining the use of the word God. God even of Christ Jesus. The presence is of Christ. That is Paul's focus. You say, well, how do you get to that answer from the English text? Well, you can go to the description that is used in the next phrases and see that the point of reference here is Christ exclusively. Notice the descriptors that are used to outline the divine authority. Who, singular, is the judge who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, you have to go back in your Bible memory. You have to go back in your understanding. But in, in the Gospel of John, we find that God the Father will not judge. He has actually given that. He has delegated that to the Son. The Son will judge. Jesus Christ will sit on the judgment seat and He will evaluate the living and the dead. That is, those who have been redeemed and those who have not. Those who have passed away and those who have not. So it is a singular designation, God even of Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus is the one who is to judge living the dead, and it is Christ Jesus whose appearing he calls upon, and it is Christ's kingdom who he references. And so he uses three descriptors that all point to one individual, and that individual is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. It's not that he is undermining the Father or the Spirit, but he is in a special sense placing the accountability of what he is about to command Timothy under the umbrella of the ministry and the oversight of the head of the church, the Son. And so he describes the Son as the one who judges, the one who will appear, and the one whose kingdom is coming. All of those realities point to Christ exclusively and the second person of the Trinity. And so he employs this divine divine authority for the basis of what he is to command in verse 2. He charges him with apostolic authority, but he does so only in the presence of God, even of Christ Jesus, who is to judge, who will appear, and whose kingdom is coming. That is the authority behind the pastor's preaching. 
You understand the implication of that? To ask the pastor why he preaches the way he preaches must be backed up by the clear instruction that comes from the apostolic word in the presence of the head of the church. Therefore, the word of God becomes the driving informer or the teacher, the instructor for the preacher of the word of God. And of course, you already know, because we already read ahead, you already know that that's also going to be the content of the preaching. So Paul here outlines the authority for this charge. He charges him as an apostle, and he charges him in the presence of Christ. Now, he charges him, but he doesn't leave it nebulous as to what he desires. In verse 2, he moves from the authority for the pastor's preaching to the source for the pastor's preaching. And here we find the command, three words that have changed the course of history as men have been consumed and gripped under the Holy Spirit's illumination by their truth. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preaching. What is preaching? Preaching is such a common word, at least in our church, in our context. We talk about it a lot. We mention that word. And yet I think it's interesting to see other word pictures that are describing the same concept that we have translated here as preach. One is a herald for a king. The same word is used for one who heralds uh, a town crier, if you will. I mean, this is from a different context altogether. Somebody rolls up in their buggy into town or whatever that is. They have horses pulling it. It's got wheels. Buggy, chariot. Chariot, that's maybe a little older than I'm thinking. Um, they come, and well, I'm thinking England, all right, and there's like big haystacks and stuff all around, and they roll up into town, and they've got this piece of parchment, and they break the seal, and they roll it out, and they say, here, here, uh, the king has spoken. Right? Am I getting blank stares? You know what I'm talking about, the the town crier. All right? You've seen this in a play or something. I think I've been the kid who goes, here, here, you know, and you have to say the thing. That is the same word that's used here that we translate preach. It is a herald. It is one who comes not with his own message, but he declares the message of another. That fits perfectly with what we find here in Paul's charge to young Timothy. He is to proclaim. He is to boldly pronounce Not his own word, but the word. He has a very clear source for his pastoral preaching. It is the word of God that is the source of, the basis for, and the end of all Christian preaching. You can preach, but if you're going to preach Christianly, if you will, you can preach in a number of different settings. There are proclaimers of any number of messages but the Christian preacher is preaching the Word. Period. That is the boundary. And Paul doesn't need to remind Timothy about the Word because Timothy would have read this letter all at one time. He wouldn't have had week after week of coming by paragraph to read this. And so he remembers what happened in verses 14 through 17. He remembers that Paul just described to him the power and the sufficiency of the Bible. And so for Paul to then say, right after those words of description about the Scriptures, that he is now charging Timothy that that is his task. He is to proclaim that Word, the inspired Scripture, the preserved Word from God to man. He grasped this truth. Verses 14-17 through set the context for him. 
Biblical preaching is that preaching that derives its themes, its structure, and its applications from the Bible alone. It starts and it finishes with the Bible. That is biblical preaching. That's also what we call expository preaching. It is exposing the message of the Bible. A common phrase today, in fact, I've been reading a great book called Preach the Word. Um, it's been outstanding. It's a tribute to uh, one of my heroes on the shelf and one that I've had the privilege of meeting. His name is Kent Hughes. He's long time the pastor at College Church in Wheaton, but the book is a tribute to his expository preaching ministry. It's called Preach the Word, and one of the the phrases that has caught my attention over and over and over again is that expository preaching, biblical preaching as commanded here, is just simply re-revelation. It is re-revealing what is revealed. It's simply taking the Word of God, reading it, and explaining it as Ezra did so many thousands of years ago in the temple. They opened the Word, he read the Word, he explained the Word, and the people wept. Preach the Word. I hope you understand that I could go on for hours on this, but we're not going to. We're going to keep moving because Paul keeps moving. He doesn't just leave us with the source for the pastor's preaching. He moves then to the method for the pastor's preaching as well. He gives us a methodology. He gives us an outline of what that preaching looks like. It actually has key components. And maybe you haven't thought about this, but the preaching, the Christian preaching of the local church must find its source in the Word, there's no question, but it must also mirror these traits. These are the basis of faithfulness to this charge in the presence of our Christ. Preach the Word, and then he describes that preaching in verse 2. Read along as I read these. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. These are your descriptors. These are to build your expectations when you come to the preaching time in the local church. You should expect these components. You should expect that you hear from the Word. That the Word speaks through the message of your pastors. And you should expect these components to be a part of that declaration, that heralding of another's message, none other than our Christ. Be ready in season and out of season. Here we find this first description of the method for the pastor's preaching is, is simply stated whether it's popular or not. And that's really what Paul's addressing. Because he just got done telling Timothy that it's not going to be popular. And so he's saying in Ephesus, whether it's in season or if it's out of season. And I, I love that picture. Do it anyway. That would be like the game warden telling you, I don't care if it's in season or out of season, I want you to shoot this certain game. doesn't matter what the culture says. doesn't matter what the, the general opinion is. Keep with this task. Whether you're popular or not, this must be the consuming reality of all Christian preaching. It is the Word. Being ready. Being set and ready to deliver the Word no matter the scenario no matter the popularity or the appreciation for the Word. <clears throat> he goes on then to describe 
key components of the preaching. We have reproving preaching. Reprove. And I, surely there is a more uh, understandable word for us than reprove. I, it's an unfamiliar word in my own vocabulary. The word simply means exposing, convicting, or correcting preaching. There is an element of preaching that is to set things in order, to expose what is wrong, um, to convict, to, to go ahead and lay out that there is a clear standard. That's part of preaching that would fit under this charge from Paul to Timothy. Christian preaching reproves, it corrects, it convicts, it exposes. Not only does it reprove, but it rebukes. And here we've gone from a strong word to a stronger word. Biblical preaching rebukes, it warns, it censures, and it scolds. You say, I don't know that I like that. Well, I don't either. None of us like to be told that we're wrong. None of us like to be told that we need to be correct. None of us told that need to be told that or like to be told that we need to get our, our life in order. Thank you, Marty. <clears throat> we set that up since Marty's on that thirty day trial period. Well done, Marty. Came through with flying colors. None of us like to be reproved or rebuked, but this is a component of biblical preaching. Biblical preaching, because the Bible rebukes sinners, then the re-revelation of what God has given will always rebuke sinners. That's a key component, okay? Reproving, rebuking, and then the final one is such a blessing because Paul is so balanced in his approach here. The last one is exhorting. So the preaching is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And exhortation is another word that's fallen out of use in our language, but exhorting uh, has the idea of comforting, encouraging, um, prompting. Bring the, the, the original idea is to bring someone alongside of you. Exhorting is throwing your arm around someone and saying, come on, we can do this. And so those are the key components. The, the preaching of the Word must mirror a consistency, whether it is popular or not. But it must also reflect a reproving aspect that comes from the Word of God, exposing and convicting and correcting, a rebuking aspect that warns and censures and scolds those that are opposed to it, and an exhortation that comforts and encourages and provides the opportunity for growth from those who hear it. Those are all key components. They are non-negotiables because these Make up the charge that is given from the apostle in the presence of the head of the church. Therefore, Timothy must reflect these if he is to be faithful and therefore to be successful, which is what faithfulness is. Finally, then, we see the last descriptor in verse 2. At the end there, we see the last phrase, with complete patience and teaching. And it's kind of interesting that he would say, preach the word with patience and teaching. And yet, that is a key component. There is no preaching that is devoid of teaching. But there is teaching that is not preaching. Does that make sense? There is no preaching that does not teach. But there is teaching that does not preach. Get your mind around that. And then say it ten times backwards. Okay? 
My point being that there is no proclamation of the Word of God that does not instruct, it does not indoctrinate us. That is the appropriate method of preaching. And it is to be done with that, with that balancing of complete patience. Here is one who is to stand before God's people and to boldly reprove them and to boldly rebuke them and to exhort them to growth and development. All from the Word. To do that in season and out of season. Day in and day out. That is the ministry, but it is to be accomplished with an, with an eye to teaching the body of Christ, to instructing them, to outlining for them, and helping them understand the truth, as well as with a sense of patience, with endurance, with an understanding that God will use His Word in the lives of His people. This is the divinely inspired and preserved method for the pastor's preaching, if he is to be found faithful. He must preach the Word. He must do it consistently, and he must do it with the components that have been outlined for him here and elsewhere, but here in verse 2 specifically. Let me just pause here before we finish up this section and let you know that these, these components hold my conscience, David's conscience, Dave's conscience, and everyone else's conscience who has a part of the teaching ministry here. These hold our conscience as much as the qualifications we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. These are the qualifications of preaching. These are non-negotiables. They are not up for debate. This is what preaching looks like. And it looks like this within the personality of any given man who has been called to this office and gifted for the task. It doesn't always sound the same. It doesn't always look the same. But it will always have these key components if it is in fact biblical preaching. At times, no doubt, the preaching that you will hear will lack a certain aspect or be weak in a certain aspect. And yet the pattern must be that this verse number 2 could be stamped across the preaching here at Grace Church. You should expect it. You should demand it. And you must hear it. It's the lifeblood of your spiritual development, the proclamation of the Word of God. Now let me just take you, I just want to do this briefly, so I know we can't spend a lot of time, but go back if you would, and let me just show you the validity of preaching the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10, we find a familiar section, but maybe one that is memorable for other passages. There's great verses here, like number 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, part of the Romans road, uh, if you have familiarity with that. But notice verse 14, and it's the one that I want to particularly point out to you. And this outlines the primacy of preaching. It never goes out of God's ordained plan for preaching to exist. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And then this final conclusion, and how are they to hear without someone heralding, someone proclaiming, someone preaching? Someone must proclaim the gospel. It is the means by which hearing is translated to faith in the life of those that will be saved. 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then it goes on to say, How beautiful are the feet, in verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach, who proclaim, who herald the good news. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaking to the proclamation, the heralding of the gospel, both of these contexts move outside of the pastoral preaching to the general proclamation and re-revelation of the gospel to those who do not know it. But he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, and where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demanded a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This is the preaching of the cross. It is the preaching that God uses as the means of saving sinners. The proclamation of the Word. The source for the pastor's preaching is in fact the Word itself. And the method is outlined there in verse number 2. It is constant, it is persistent, And it is styled after those clear commands to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and instruction. Now, finally, the demand for the pastor's preaching. Why is it that this needs to happen? Well, this charge is given to Timothy for a very clear reason, beginning in verse number 3. You see the little word for. It's an explanation word. Paul's going to explain why he just said what he said. Here's why it's important, Timothy. For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why is there a demand for biblical preaching, for expository preaching? Why is there a demand for the preaching of the Word? It is because in this time frame, right here, right now, people will no longer endure sound teaching. Therefore, the the proclamation of sound doctrine becomes all the more critical. There will not be a clamoring for the Word. Therefore, the preacher's ministry of the Word becomes all the more necessary. Becomes all the more priority. People will not endure sound doctrine. People will accumulate their own teachers. People will desire to have their ears tickled. People will refuse to live their lives in such a way as to be confronted and moved by the Word of God. This is what will take place. This is what is taking place. I wrote down in my notes, Welcome to 21st century evangelical ministry. Accumulating teachers for the sake of tickling the ears. Tickling there does not mean torturing the ears. It means tickling as in the sense of tingling the ears, making them feel pleasant. This is the testimony of what is and is to come. We are here. People are no longer enduring sound doctrine. There is no longer any tolerance for the clear instruction that flows from the Word of God. 
There is no longer any sense of a need and a desire for depth in instruction, but rather just a light, quick, feel-good, itching-ear kind of a message. Therefore, this charge is given to Timothy, and it is passed on through the preservation of the Word to Grace Church of the Valley. This is directly associated to us. The people of our time will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Any myriad of understandings, any other ideas will all be considered as more valuable than listening to the preached truth. This is why we must do what Paul commands in verse 2. The contrast then, he says, the people are going to respond this way, but then you, Timothy, you need to respond differently. As for you, verse 5 wraps this up, as for you, always be sober-minded. talked about that last Sunday and the character of the leadership within the church. Always have a mind that is unaffected by an outside source. That's what that means. Sober, as in unaffected by some outside source. Sober-minded, a mind that is settled and renewed and serious about the task at hand. You always be sober-minded. Endure suffering, which is guaranteed. Verses 12-13 through of chapter 3. Endure in the suffering. Hold up underneath of the burden of the suffering that will come. The reproach that will come for declaring the truth. Do the work of an evangelist. Press on in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinful people. Do not stop preaching the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist and so fulfill your ministry. Fill up your ministry. And Paul, of course, had all the credibility in the world to finish like this, didn't he? To tell Timothy to fulfill his ministry. Why? Because the Apostle Paul could boldly say in these next verses that that was his own testimony. He had done exactly what God had called him to do. He had been faithful to the end. He had fulfilled his ministry. He had done the work of an evangelist. He had endured in suffering. And he had been sober-minded. And now he turns and uses those descriptors to, to contrast Timothy to the common cycle of the world with people not enduring sound doctrine and having itching ears, departing from the truth and wandering off into false doctrine. This causes the demand for biblical preaching to go up. There will not be a clamoring in our day for Bible preaching. There will not be a widespread, I don't believe, a widespread return to a desire amongst those who would claim to be believers for the truth. And yet those who will boldly proclaim it and faithfully proclaim it will receive the blessing we find in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. They will receive a reward from their chief shepherd because they have been faithful, they have endured in this charge, the apostolic charge in the presence of Christ. Preach the word. Period. Don't move away from the word. How does that affect us this evening? I think it has a couple of very key applications for you. Number one, you should, as we've already discussed, demand the word to be preached. You should expect the word to be preached by your shepherds. And your shepherds must, must preach the word. It is an immovable standard. But I think secondly, there is a key application here because with the preaching of the word, 
comes a responsibility as hearers of the word. There's a great uh, energy in our church, there's a great uh, sense of commitment to expository preaching. But I've been thinking this week and praying this week that there would be an equally intense movement for expository hearing. Expository hearing of the Word of God is given to us in outline in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Not hearers of the Word only, but doers. Those who receive the Word, they receive the implanted Word, not with anger and talking back, but with a readiness to apply it. Who look in the mirror and see what the Word reflects back to them of themselves and then make the changes by God's grace. May you expect and receive in God's, in God's kind providence the preaching of the Word and may you learn to appropriate the preaching of the Word for the sake of the glory of Christ. 